0: Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes and our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening.
1: You think you can make it better? Somebody's lost, you find him. Somebody's bleeding can and I he's... go get my daddy that's really brave, like you said. That took a lot of guts to go to him. You are not scared
0: of anything, I don't Me, know...
1: I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of what I saw, I'm scared
0: of what I did, of who I am. And most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. In 1987, a small Connecticut-based direct-to-video company made their first feature film for a true theatrical release. With low expectations from investors due to a female-driven plot in the midst of testosterone-heavy summer blockbusters, this small movie became a word-of-mouth sleeper hit. It made a dancing football player turned actor a bona fide sex symbol, movie star, and birthed a worldwide phenomenon called Dirty Dancing. And that's the movie we're talking about this week 1987 movie Dirty Dancing, starring Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Gray. And uh, I'm glad to have for this episode, our 10th episode so far, my beautiful wife as my co host, who got to watch this with me, or Mm -hmm. I got to watch it with her, however you want to say that. Mm -hmm. So please welcome Tyra Williams. Say hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. (laughs) All right, so do you remember the first time you saw Dirty Dancing?
1: I think (laughs) I saw Dirty Dancing. With um, some of my friends at their house. I did not see it at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. We all got together and watched it at one
0: friend's house. Right. It was probably like a VHS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't remember if I saw this in the theater. If I did, this is around the time that I was living in Maryland on a military base. Um and the military base had a movie theater on base, but it only showed one movie and that movie was only like for a weekend. So it would Wow. Yeah. Um and so they didn't show like the movie had been out for a while. This is before everything went to video in like mm-hmm. a month or two. Um but so I'm sure I probably saw it there, uh only because it was the music from it was already pretty popular by that point. I mean I I actually remember the soundtrack. I think more than I remember the movie, even though I've seen the movie several times. Uh, we were watching it yesterday. The songs came on. I just want to sing along to the songs because mm-hmm. the soundtracks, because there were two of them, um, are kind of emblazoned in, in, in my mind from that that era. But my sister actually is the one that had the vinyl uh, soundtracks, oh, cool. like the you know actual full albums, the mm-hmm. soundtracks. And so I was always getting in trouble because I was always taking it from her, so I could listen to it. Um, but anyway, that was that's most the story. So now, do you remember? Because I I think I remember this, but do you know how long it's been since you watched it before watching it again for the podcast? Uh,
1: probably nineteen eighty nine. No, no,
0: <laughs> no, I think we watched this together. <laughs> um. Right before Hannah was born, our daughter. It was possible. Because I think we were in the hospital. and Yeah, yeah. I want to say it was around the time that Patrick Swayze passed away. Because I think he passed away in 2009.
1: And I think, yeah. And I was all laid up in the bed thinking. Yeah. And we were just trying to find stuff to watch. And, yeah. And, uh, so I think it came on TV. Like I was it all was, sad. Yeah. And, I think
0: mm-hmm. it was the TV version that we watched. But that was the first time I'd seen it. Probably since like, well, I've seen it. In the late 90s, uh, with an ex girlfriend because she was mm-hmm. probably more obsessed with it than anybody else. But anyway, we won't dive into that. No, let's not. That <laughs> so, anyway. uh-huh. so, but the movie has a very interesting, uh, it has its own interesting backstory, actually, um, how it, it came to be. So, and as I mentioned in the intro, um, it was not made by a major studio, uh, it was made by Vestron Pictures, which was uh, our Vestron Studios. Which was Vestron Pictures, which have been known for making direct-to-video movies. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so anyway, so uh, we'll we'll dig a little bit into that. So, but actually, Dirty Dancing is based in a large part on screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein's own childhood. Mm -hmm. She is the younger daughter of a Jewish doctor from New York and had spent summers with her family in the Catskills, where she participated in what she called dirty dancing competitions. Mm-hmm. She was also nicknamed Baby herself as a girl and said she was called Baby until she was like 22. So, But she claims this is not the story of her life, even though she pulled elements of her life for the story. Mm-hmm. In 1980, Bergstein wrote a screenplay for the Michael Douglas film called It's My Turn. However, the producers cut an erotic dancing scene from the script, prompting her to conceive a new story that took inspiration from her youth dance competitions. In 1984, she pitched the idea to MGM executive Eileen Mazell, who liked it and teamed Bergstein with producer Linda Gottlieb. They set the film in 1963 with the character of Baby based on Bergstein's own life and the character of Johnny Castle uh, on stories of Michael Terrence, a dance instructor whom Bergstein met in the Catskills in 1985 while she was researching the story. She finished the script in November of 1985, but management changes at MGM actually put the script into turnaround, or what we call limbo.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Bergstein gave the script to other studios, but was repeatedly rejected until she brought it to Vestron Pictures. While honing their pitch to Vestron, Gottlieb had agreed to cut the proposed budget in half. Bergstein and Gottlieb then chose Emil Ardolino as the film's director. He had never directed a feature film, so he wow. got you know <laughs> mm. but was extremely passionate about the project after reading the script while he was on jury duty. But he <laughs> was an Academy Award-winning director, but he had directed a documentary about kids uh, in a New York dance studio. So he had some dance experience or new to film dancing, it seems. Right. So the team got Lee Bergstein and Artellino oh, Artellino then presented their vision for the film to Vestron's president John Pissinger and the company's vice president for production, Mitchell Canald. By the end of the meeting, Pessinger had green-lighted light, green the project to become Vestron's first feature film production. The approved budget was budgeted at the relatively low amount of $5 million, at a time when the average cost for a film was $12 million. For choreographer, Bergstein chose Kenny Ortega, who had been trained by Gene Kelly. Mm. For a location, they did not find anything suitable in the Catskills, as many of the resorts had been shut down at that point. So they decided on a combination of two locations, Lake Lure, North Carolina, outside of um, Raleigh, Mm -hmm. and the Mountain Lake Hotel near Pembroke, Virginia. And with Mm -hmm. careful editing, made it look like all shooting was done in the same area. That's cool. Yeah. So um, if you want to get a lot of the backstory, uh, which uh, there's a show on Netflix called the movies that made us and i think there's one season from what i hear there's a second season coming out but their first episode is actually about dirty dancing so um they go into a lot more detail it's a great story um it's about 45 it's almost an hour long um but it digs a little bit deeper into a lot of the people that we mentioned here so but um so it's interesting how it came how it came about uh, especially with like vestron pictures and they talked to uh, the vice president that's mentioned here And he was very heavily involved in the production He's actually the one that found the script So when Vestron was trying to uh, find movies to make They basically were taking all the scripts that the major studios had rejected mm-hmm. And so they would just spend time reading the scripts And they'd make it about 10, <coughs> 10 or 15 pages in and then chunk it And he said that he actually... Uh, read it on a Sunday night, and because he had gone to the Catskills as a young young man, there was a lot in the script that uh, kind of was very nostalgic for him. And he said he got all the jokes, he understood what it was about. Mm. He didn't, you know, he said he laughed, he cried. It just became, you know, it was all a passion project for him as much as it was for uh, the writer and the producer. So he really wanted to get the film made, and so he was very instrumental in making sure that it it, it made it. So, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the casting. So, of course, we know Patrick Swayze mm-hmm. was in the movie. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Gray, which, you know, my wife was asking me while we are watching the movie who they were because she doesn't remember the actors' <laughs> names very <or> often. <alpha>. Nope. <laughs> uh, but this was not their first movie together. They were actually together in the movie Red Dawn, and we'll mm-hmm. get into that here. So, director Artolino was adamant that they choose dancers who could also act. He did not want to use the stand in method. That have been used before in movies like Flashdance and Footloose, where they had dance doubles for oh, wow. the main characters. So, if you didn't know that, we we, have, we haven't covered Flashdance or Footloose. But I remember way back in the day when somebody told me that uh, the dance double for Kevin Bacon in Flashdance was actually a woman that they had to make look like <laughs> like a man. So, oh gosh. Uh, so, anyway, side note. Mm-hmm. For the female lead of Francis Baby Houseman, Bergstein chose the 26-year-old Jennifer Grey, daughter of the Oscar-winning actor and dancer Joel Grey. The producers then sought a male lead, initially considering 20-year-old Billy Zane, though initial screen tests when he was partnered with Grey did not meet expectations. He was also a horrible dancer, and they show... There's some screen tests you can find online and also in the special that showed him dancing, and he was not good <laughs> at all. Wow. Um the next choice was 34-year-old Patrick Swayze, who had appeared in a small film called Grandview USA in 1984, and he also co-starred with Gray on Red Dawn in 1984. He was a seasoned dancer with experience uh, in ballet. His mother was actually like one, was one of those famous dance instructors in Texas where he was from. The producers were thrilled with Swayze, but his resume read no dancing because he had suffered a knee injury when he played football, so... Um, I also watched the documentary about Patrick Swayze's life a couple of years ago. That was really good. Um, and in his upbringing, he really wanted to be, um, his mother really wanted him to be a dancer, but he was also wanted to be a football player. His dad was very tough. His mom was uh, more on the dance side. Uh, Swayze read the script, liked the multi-level character of Johnny, and took the part After this, Johnny's heritage was changed from being Italian to Irish, which I really didn't notice a diff. I didn't pick up on him being Irish. I think he tried to talk more like he was from the city in the movie, almost like Brooklyn. I
1: wouldn't have have figured Irish, not too much Italian either. Just a street kid, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: He was definitely more, yeah, like street hood kind of. Yeah, you know. The movie does talk Hustler. a li- Yeah, the, the movie has multi layers. I mean, it's, it is somewhat of a dancing movie, but you know, the some of the underlying you know themes of the movie is about class. You know, yes. baby was very upper class, lot of class. lots it's, of classes. money, and mm-hmm. you know Johnny and uh, the dancers, the staff They live in shacks, right. and, and little row houses along the outskirts of the camp, right? You know? Yeah, right. So or a resort. <laughs> So, Jennifer Grey was initially not happy about the choice of Swayze, uh, as she and Swayze had difficulty getting along on the movie Red Dawn, but when they did their dancing screen test, the chemistry between them was obvious. Bergstein described it as, quote-unquote, breathtaking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, other casting choices were Broadway actor Jerry Orbach as Dr. Jake Hausman, baby's father, and Jane Brucker as Lisa Hausman, her older sister. The role of the social director went to the then-unknown Wayne Knight, who later came to fame in movies in the TV show Seinfeld and Third Rock from the Sun. Mm-hmm. He was also in Jurassic Park.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: uh, but that was his, this was his big break. The part of Baby's mother was originally given to Lynn Lipton, who was briefly visible in the beginning when the Houseman family first pulls into the Kellerman's resort. She is in the front seat for a few seconds. Her blonde hair is the only indication, but she became ill during the first week of shooting and was replaced by actress Kelly Bishop, who was later on the grandmother on.
1: Gilmore, Gilmore Girls,
0: girls. <laughs> uh, She had already been cast To play the resort guest Vivian Pressman Which was like The older lady The lady Oh god, Yeah was You know Making the advances At Johnny mm-hmm. uh, Bishop moved in the role Of Mrs. How- Mrs. Houseman And the film's Assistant choreographer Miranda Garrison Took the role of Vivian I think that kind of Worked out
1: Yeah
0: mm-hmm. So What did you think About the casting You like the casting For the movie
1: Um Sure
0: Well, I will say this. (laughs) So it came down, there were a lot of people that auditioned, like Sharon Stone auditioned Mm. for the role. Um, I think the uh, Vestron Pictures actually wanted Pia Zadora as baby. That was their first choice, but she was, you know, I guess she was too pretty for the role, (laughs) is what. Uh, Bergstein hits yeah, cause it
1: Jennifer Gray is pretty But yeah. she looks like a teenager I mean, yeah. She's supposed to be 17 in the right. movie Getting ready to go off to college or whatever So mm. she looks She has that childish right. cute look
0: Yeah her and her and Swayze Actually played Had to play characters 10 years Almost 10 years younger than themselves mm. So she was supposed to be playing an 18 year old He was supposed to be playing a 24 year old wow. So um, But yeah so uh, Sharon Stone auditioned there was someone else and then sarah jessica parker from okay the game number six in the city and then for the guys it was benicio del toro was in running for for a little bit uh then pretty much unknown at that time and then billy zane was who they kind of really wanted because he was kind of an up and come up and coming actor and everybody thought he was gonna be the next marlon brando he really didn't He's been in a couple of movies, but he's always had side roles. Yeah, and the that only
1: name has not made the big. Jar, no,
0: has it? <laughs> he's been. In, I mean, he's been in some. He was in Titanic. Um, he's got a bit part in like Back the to the Ship Future. Sound. Yeah, yeah. So, but <laughs> but it basically came down to Swayze, Gray, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Benicio del Toro. And they were always they were talking about theirs in one of the casting or uh, auditions. They kept having them switch with different people doing their lines and the dancing because they want to make sure that they could act as well as they could dance Mm -hmm. now of course patrick was a trained dancer jennifer could move but she was not a very good dancer so a lot of the instruction that you see in the movie of you know johnny teaching baby to dance is really swayze kind of helping her Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so a lot of that was uh, kind of uh more real than yeah, I not, thought Penny so.
1: was the better dancer. Yeah. Like his partner. Oh, yeah, yeah, that. definitely. I mean, she, she was, yeah. Uh, she had moves. <laughs> yes.
0: She was actually the first one cast for the movie. Cool. She had been in uh, Staying Alive with John Travolta, and she was did have a small role in Flashdance. So, once again, they are really trying to get real dancers. And yeah, mm-hmm. she was phenomenal. So, I almost wish she had a bigger role in the movie. So. So, as I said, relations between the two main stars varied throughout production. They had already had trouble getting along in their previous project, Red Dawn, and it worked things out enough to have an extremely positive screen test. But that, initial co- that initial, but that initial cooperation soon faded, and they were soon facing off before, you know, fighting before every scene. To address this, producer Bergstein and director Ottolino forced the stars to re-watch their initial screen tests, the ones with the breathtaking chemistry. This had the desired effect, and Swayze and Gray were able to return to the film with renewed energy and enthusiasm. As I mentioned a minute ago, some of the scenes in the film were actually improvised. For example, the scene where Gray was to stand in front of Swayze with her back to him and put her arm around his head while he trailed his fingers down her arm. Gray was exhausted at the time of shooting and found the move ticklish and could not stop giggling each time Mm -hmm. Swayze tried it, and he was actually really annoyed, which you see in the movie. The footage was found in the editing room when the producers decided the scene worked as it was and put it in the film, complete with Gray's giggling and Swayze's annoyed expression. It became one of the most famous scenes in the movie, turning out, as as choreographer Kenny Ortega put it, as one of the most delicate and honest moments in the film. Mm -hmm. So, talk a little bit about Kenny Ortega. Um, He was pretty much a relative unknown before this. Um, He talks about in the movies that made us that he went from, you know, doing this to he, next thing you know, he was on Oprah talking about Dirty Dancing, which really, you know, helped launch him. But um, he's uh, more known now for, as a director, mm-hmm. he's directed several Disney movies that we've watched. Uh, he really got his claim, you know, his a claim to fame, but his biggest Disney hit was High School Musical and those sequels, but most recently he's done the descendant series, which we've all oh, yes. seen mm-hmm. with my daughter. Good dancing. Um, mm-hmm. But he also worked extensively with Michael Jackson, and he was choreographing mm-hmm. the This Is It tour yeah, yeah. when Michael Jackson passed. So mm-hmm. um, if you want to see more of Kenny Ortega kind of in his element, if you want to watch This Is It, uh, the documentary about Michael Jackson's uh, final tour that never kind of was, um, he's in that a lot, and you really kind of see his heart um, of him as, a, As I could see him being a very good director, as well as a great choreographer so I was uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed his aspect of the of the movie) <laughs> So let's talk about some favorite scenes. Any scenes stick out to you that you?
1: Well, I'll, I will say the first, maybe the first part of the movie when they're all driving in and um, the camp director. And I say camp. I know it's a resort, mm-hmm. but it just it just gives it, you the feel, feel of camp, family yeah. camp, right? You know, so you. The family pulls up, they do this every year, same week, every year, mm-hmm. same families, same week, every year. Right. So they all know each other, know each other's business, and they catch up or whatever. Um, and the kids go off to get ready for the talent show and all of this stuff. It just felt like camp. You know, yeah. the parents are out golfing and the kids are out learning dance lessons. And, yeah. And then there's, you know, the wives who are hitting on all the hot single men and, you <laughs> um, and just, you know, just, I don't know, just made me think
0: of those movies like Weekend at Bernie's and... Um, well, it reminded me, we watched the show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there was one season where most of that season, they're at the camp, which is very reminiscent to this. Yes, where, where they go for the week. Right. For the, yeah. yeah, for vacation. So yes. mm-hmm. even seeing Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, it took me back to Dirty Dancing, and then of course watching the Dirty Dancing, it took, it took me back, you back to Marvelous, Marvelous Mrs. Mrs. Maisel, so... Kind of, that helped me kind of get a, like, Mm -hmm. seeing this as a kid, the camp, Mm -hmm. I didn't really get it. I mean, like, kind of like you, think about, well, family goes to a camp together. I don't, I'm not used to that. But then, in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, to see that that's something they went to every year. Yes. And it's, you know. So it's a resort. Once again, it's for the Jewish community. It seemed, you know, at least in in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, it's evident that's what it is. Here, it's kind of alluded to, but not really fully explained, Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. But, um. And that's a thing And I'm like wait Maybe we need a thing You know (laughs) (laughs) Yeah Yeah. So like I said Although religion is never mentioned outright in the movie And many non-Jewish viewers like myself Never perceive the aspect of the plot The Hausman family and many other main characters Are supposed to be Jewish Mm -hmm. The resort on which Kellerman's was based Grosinger's Hotel Along with most of the other Catskills resorts uh, Was opened in the early 13th century To cater mostly to Jewish vacationers this was because, at the time, it was very common for other hotels and report resorts to reject Jewish customers. Max Kellerman uses the Yiddish terms for grandmother and grandfather, Booby and Zadie, mm-hmm. when reminiscing about his grandparents serving the first pasteurized milk to the borders. Mm-hmm. When the movie was released, many reviewers mentioned the family's Juda- Judaism as a matter of course. For example, Vincent Canby's New York Times review called Baby's Background quote-unquote conventionally liberal and Jewish, End quote. And Roger Ebert's print review said that, quote, the family's opposition to a Gentile boyfriend of low social status was obviously the main point of the plot. End quote. Mm -hmm. In a 2011 interview, screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein characterized it as a Jewish movie, quote, if you know what you're looking at. (laughs) If you know what you're looking at, right. Right.
1: You'd have to know. (laughs) But yeah, so that was that, you know, the pulling up and everybody... You know, greeting each other—the mm-hmm. whole nostalgia or feeling of camp—but it was for it was a family camp. So now knowing that it was, you know, a you know a Jewish uh, type vacation vacation for Resort, Jewish yeah. families. Yeah. So I was just make you know share some light on it, but I thought that scene was cool. But then um, the scene I really liked was um, when Baby went over to find. The friend and on the the employee side mm-hmm. of the resort, and they were all dancing. Mm-hmm. They were all partnered up and dancing. Yeah, and it just kind of made me uh, think of I can't even name a movie, but it just was like a juke joint, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Where everybody's just sweating it out, dancing and grooving, and it was just I just I thought that scene was really cool. It's mm-hmm. like wow, these people have moves, you know?
0: Oh yeah. So <laughs> yeah, they said that. The director actually wanted them to. He wanted those those scenes to be, the party scenes to be very uh, organic, so they would have lots of. I said during rehe- dance rehearsals, it would eventually just turn into like a big dancing party, mm. and so he decided to let it continue like night after night after night. <laughs> they would just, yeah. I said, even like the the uh, you know the non dancers were still part of the party, mm-hmm. but it helped them to uh, everyone to bond together and to make those scenes where they're dancing to look less choreographed and more like they're just really just dancing which I, I kind of picked up on mm-hmm. this time like it didn't like it didn't seem choreographed dancing as much as like the you know the scenes with Johnny and right. uh, with and baby it was they were just dancing and I think kind of captured um that there so any other scenes
1: um I like so you know when he's teaching her how to dance when he instructs her, you know, you're in my space, you Mm -hmm. here, my arms are here, look at me, don't look down, Mm -hmm. and then later on, the roles are switched when she's now, she can dance now Mm -hmm. and she's telling him, no you're in my space, Mm -hmm. and then she's all playful, Oh yeah, yeah. you know, remember arms here, arms here, Mm -hmm. look at me don't look down and everything, Mm -hmm. and it's just it was just really funny that she got to get him back when he was so serious when he was teaching her, and -hmm. then when it when it flipped and she did the same thing back to him but she was being funny and cute with it mm-hmm. you know because she liked him all along like oh yeah when she saw him the from the moment she saw him she was like "Ooh!" and just trying to find a way to get with him so it was just cute to see that
0: yeah i felt bad for his was his cousin that he, to carry the watermelons in because <laughs> it, it was evident that he, he liked, liked penny like no yeah, baby he, he like baby. baby yes and so, which is why he, you know, broke, the, broke her. the rules to have her come. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, as soon as she saw Johnny, he was like, "Well, I guess, you know, he gets all the girls anyway." But I felt kind of bad that you kind of his character kind of got lost at that point. Yeah, but, it did. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess at the very end, he was dancing with Penny, right? He was dancing with the sister. That's Penny, right? No, no, no. Nobody. Penny was the his was Swayze's partner. The, mm-hmm, yeah. the dance partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, the, I can't sister's remember the sister's name, but she's really
1: <laughs> of no consequence. Yeah, because yeah, she was there for comedy. That belief, horrible for sure. voice and that whiny, <laughs> that, that, her whininess is yeah. just like, oh, just disappear, sister, yeah. please. <laughs> my favorite,
0: my favorite line with her is like, "He's, like, what are you gonna, you know, when the dad is mad at baby and they're having breakfast about you, yes. are gonna leave." And he was like, "So, what are you gonna sing at the at the thing?" And she's like, "Well, I was thinking." And he gets up and yeah. walks away. And she's like, but I, and she and she's like, she got, follows him. Like, I could do this. She repeats the same one again. It was just mm-hmm. that was, but that just once again proved it. It was it was evident that baby was the favorite because mm-hmm. like actually I watched the leaded scene today where it, I think it's implied, but he actually says it in the leaded scene. He was like, baby never lies. Right So he trusts baby He trusts her a lot And the other sister was kind of like I want to But I don't have the same affection that baby has So There's a lot of family family dynamics It's Mm -hmm. funny Looking back on it now It's like You know you A movie like this You watch in different Phases of your life Like When I saw it I was Probably a preteen 87 Yeah I would have been like 12 You know preteen Um so of course I didn't see it through Jennifer Grey's character's eyes because I wasn't a girl, nor was I Jewish. Uh, but <laughs> but I guess I wanted to be Johnny. I, I, you know, as a guy watching the movie as a kid, you want to be Johnny. You want to be the cool one, the one that could dance. Which I was neither of those things at that time. But um, and then watching it now as a father, I kind of see the father's perspective, and I really saw, you know. The dad, even though it's not a major role, but I, I, I appreciate Jerry Warbach, the guy, who, the actor who played the father. His portrayal of the father because he never really loses his temper, and that's you know for a drama, quote unquote drama, you are expecting like that heated discussion. I mean, he of, was mad. He was mad, but it was very subdued, which once again kind of proved the, father, the kind of father he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the scene that really got to me this time is. The scene in the gazebo where she comes And cause he's you know obviously kind of Giving her the cold shoulder and she Tells him she's like you know well you know I lied To you but you lied to me because I thought We helped people I thought we did this And you could tell It was getting to him mm-hmm. and even though he Couldn't speak it was all in the eyes And you know he's yeah, borderline it's like, crying well, Here she is yeah. throwing this in my face yeah.
1: and she's Right but gosh you know yeah How's my kid My yeah. kid yeah. becoming an adult right but, yeah, <laughs> but at the
0: same time it's like you also know what you just admitted to, mm-hmm. which you, you know, as a father, don't ever really Never want to know. Hear, <laughs> you know? Uh, so you know that you know, just kind of see seeing the movie from a different perspective, uh, which is interesting. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was it was good though. So so I think that's that that scene might be my favorite scene now mm-hmm. as an adult seeing that part of it. But I I mean, like I said, the music is such a big part for me. The songs, a lot of the dancing numbers. I'm not. am not a huge dance fan. I don't watch Dance with the Stars. Yeah, dancing. I mean, it's, it's like, cool. I mean, I appreciate it. for Makes what it me is. feel I can dance. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to yeah, yeah. get up and do the moves. Yeah, I want to get up and
1: do the moves. <laughs> so,
0: but um, but yeah, I, I think I appreciated. I appreciate the dancing more a little bit now as I'm older, um, understanding the technique, especially the the first time you see Penny and Johnny dance when they come out and do the uh. it, the mm-hmm. first the first kind of. Uh, uh, not social. They're opening event. dance. Yeah, they're opening mm-hmm. dance when you know when the the head guy Kellerman mm-hmm. was upset and told him to cut it out. And dance with the with the guests because what they, they were doing
1: was just showing their moves to get people interested in taking the dance class. Yeah,
0: That's but they, they were being to. too good to where it was like yeah. they're not gonna. He was like they're not gonna take your classes <laughs> yeah, if you're too good. You're so too
1: good. you're showing off now. Sit yeah,
0: <laughs> which I thought was interesting that uh, on a television show segment featuring brothers of famous actors. Patrick Swayze's brother Don Said that Patrick was so much Was a much better dancer Than shown in the film Because the character Johnny Castle Wasn't a professional Patrick had to tone down His moves mm, For the movie Which are gosh. like If that's toned down Oh man He was fantastic yeah. If that was toned down Oh yeah You know I mentioned that Patrick Swayze uh, Was older um, There's a rumor That he actually wore a girdle To look thinner And younger He did look <laughs> thin. <laughs> so Uh and that Cynthia Rhodes, who played Penny, uh-huh. um, and she was actually either at this time or shortly after she was married to Richard Marks. They were married, okay. so. Um, but the crew said that they had to make mm-hmm. Cynthia Rhodes look worse during the agony scene because she was just too beautiful. Because she without look, makeup to she look didn't convincing. Look like
1: she was yeah. <laughs> in pain at she, had, all.
0: she had to act really hard for those scenes. I believe that. So, but I That's did. Awesome. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead.
1: That was another um like that scene. It was like, wow, it's for them I guess probably in 87, 88 to introduce abortion. Yeah. In a movie like that. And it was it wasn't like they never really said that's what it was. Like, we know a guy, we know a yeah, doctor, you it, know.
0: It's never really and, said, but but you know. Yeah.
1: But then also the how the, the social class separation as mm-hmm. well because it was with the upper class boy or upper class young man. It was the more cousin. so
0: Huh? The He was the waiter. The
1: it was the waiter. Yeah. Yeah, it was the but waiter. He was after the upper class girl. Mm-hmm. Right. He was after right. Penny's sister. Yes. Not realizing that he was just fooling around with whoever he could fool around right. with. Right. Right. But then for the dad to come and save her
0: and then mm-hmm. But once again it's the classes. Yeah. Because you had the guests but the wait staff, I think the the owner Kellerman, mm-hmm. he made the comment they were all like Yale students, right? They you know so they
1: were still above, right? They were
0: still above the dancers, the death, like you right. know Johnny The Entertainment, them, the entertainment, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. once again, another other class, yeah, you know, classism there, exactly. So, but yeah, um, but yeah, talking about the abor- abortion was a big issue when the movie was done because um, <laughs> actually Clarasil the. Uh, acne cream uh-huh. was going to sponsor the movie because Vestron being a new mm-hmm. studio they needed money for distribution mm-hmm. um, so they were actually going to be a sponsor but when they saw that abortion was actually part of the plot uh-huh. they, threatened, they threatened to pull out and so Vestron was like you've got to cut that scene from the movie and Goldstein was like you can't cut it out because that's its kind of needed yeah she's like if you don't if The abortion doesn't happen She doesn't have to dance with Johnny Right They don't fall in love They don't, you know So it's like that was the the movie That's the catalyst That moves everything forward But they did I mean I think even for me at 13 I don't think I really Or 12 however, However however old I was I don't think I really knew What an abortion was at Mm -hmm. that point So Mm -hmm. it was somewhat over my head Right I mean I kind of put some things together But one of the big deals too About the movie that people didn't get was um or why it rub you know kinda of rub some people the wrong way. Uh when the movie is set, uh, abortions were illegal, which I guess is kind of once again alluded to in the movie. Mm-hmm. So that was you know rub is why you had some to go the wrong... see the
1: doctor right. with the cash. Right. Um, not go to the hospital right. or whatever like that. It was just done somewhere. Yeah. And then he say he had a table,
0: you know, yeah. like he put on a folding table. Yeah, it he put on a folding wasn't table, wasn't table. A like for table? real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So but, yeah. Um,
1: so, yeah, I thought that was you know that was pretty interesting and pretty probably probably pretty bold yeah. to have in a movie. Oh, very
0: much right, so. At that time, yeah, so. yes. So, so we mentioned there. So talking about the uh, the waiter, when Baby confronts him mm-hmm. about what you know why he should be taking care of Penny before she ends up, I think before she yeah, before she gets the money from her dad, he shows her a book, and we both were watching the movie we were like what book did he? Because it was kind of quick. So, the book is actually called The Fountainhead by Anne Rand. Rand was the creator of a philosophy called objectivism, which holds, amongst other beliefs, that it is more important for a person to be concerned with his or her own well-being rather than to try to help others. Some of her adherents, including apparently Robbie, interpret the book as justification for selfish and self-serving behavior. Hmm. So... Which is why, I guess, he was trying to get her to read the book. To say, like, that's this why I'm the way I am. because
1: so. yeah, she wanted to go to the Peace Corps. Right, yeah. He probably thought
0: that was a useless thing to do. So. Exactly. So, well, let's talk uh, a little bit about the soundtrack. it so says something I kind of mentioned uh, about the soundtrack. Um, was that, you know, soundtrack that you had as a kid? Do you... No, it did <laughs> not. You already know I didn't. <laughs> uh, Oh, boy. any of the songs stick out to you that you were like that you remembered besides I've had the time of my that's life that's it <laughs> you didn't know the, the Rodas Redding song what's that the uh which one was Otis Redding uh oh, Love Man that's Otis Redding
1: no. I'm a love man dun, dun, no dun, dun, dun. yeah I was a big
0: Otis Redding fan nope okay
1: you know when it comes to soundtracks <laughs> nah, I'm, I'm probably not the girl so yeah
0: well <laughs> Like especially watching it again now, and I think I did pick up on it back then too. It it does a pretty good job of blending oldies and the new the new music, like new songs. Some of the newer songs kind of stick out a little bit more uh, now. Uh, but uh, Eleanor, the the screenwriter, she actually created a cassette of songs that she wanted for the movie for specific scenes um songs she remembered dancing to when she mm-hmm. was younger. So they had a lot of trouble getting licensing because with such a small budget, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting rights to play, you know, music that's owned by other people can be very expensive. So mm-hmm. they had to kind of split the budget of like, what songs do you really want that are we have to license and then getting original songs from for the movie as well So so the film's soundtrack Started an oldies music revival And demand for the album Caught RCA Records by surprise According to Frank Previtt Before a single had even been released From the movie There was a million albums on backorder mm. The Dirty Dancing album Spent 18 weeks at number one On the Billboard 200 album sales chart And went platinum 11 times wow. Selling more than 32 million copies worldwide it actually spawned a follow-up multi-platinum album in February of 1988 titled More Dirty Dancing. Mm, mm, and yes, mm. my da- my sister had both, both albums. <laughs> oh, I don't even know anything
1: about More Dirty Dancing.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> it, it actually had more of the old, like the first one was more of the contemporary music, the original songs with only a few of the older songs. The More Dirty Dancing was all of the like more of the oldie songs, which I guess once the movie started making money, they were probably able to use that for the soundtrack okay. too. So. So before we wrap up, I did want to read this little thing that Swayze had uh, said why he thought Dirty Dancing endured for so long. In an interview with AFI, he said, It's got so much heart to me, he said. It's not about the sensuality. It's really about people trying to find themselves. Mm -hmm. This young dance instructor feeling like he's nothing but a product. And this young girl trying to find out who she is in a society of restrictions, which she has such an amazing take on things. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So the lake at the hotel... At the Mountain Lodge Where it was filmed Actually dried up in 2002 And has been dry ever since If you go to the leak today You'll see a stone in memory Of Patrick Swayze So they put a stone there So
1: Aww Sniff sniff (laughs) (laughs) That is sweet
0: Yeah So um, Of course the movie Was a hit We've already established that But it was actually By word of mouth That took the film To the number one position In the United States And in ten days It had broken the Ten million dollar mark By November, it was also achieving international fame. Within seven months of release, it had brought in $63 million in the U.S. and boosted attendance in dance classes across America. (laughs) It was one of the highest-grossing films of 1987, earning $170 million worldwide. The film's popularity continued to grow after its initial release. It was the number one video rental of 1988 and became the first film to sell a million copies on VHS. When the film was re-released in 1997, 10 years after its original release, Swayze received its own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and videos were still selling at the rate of over 40,000 per month. As of 2005, it was selling a million DVDs per year, with over 10 million copies sold as of 2007. That's crazy. So audiences definitely loved it. Uh, According to Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 90% from audiences, which is really high but it's only got a 69% from critics (laughs) Uh, on IMDb. Metacritic has it at 65 out of hundred, which is one of the first movies we've done where those are pretty close together. Usually rotten tomatoes is a little higher, Mm. uh, but a 7.0 out of 10 from audiences. So it kind of flipped on this one where the audience score is lower on IMDb. So uh, where does it sit for you? I guess it's not one of your all time favorite movies.
1: <laughs> I mean it was entertaining. Right. It was funny. Um of course I enjoyed the dancing. You know, yeah. I was up at the end doing the moves at the you know, the last dance. Mm-hmm. Getting down. Um out of a ten, I would say a seven and a half. Okay. I'd yeah. give it a seven and a
0: half. Yeah. I'm kind of there too. I mean it's definitely enjoyable, it's definitely rewatchable. Um, if not, you know, like I've said in several other episodes, for mere nostalgia reasons, mm-hmm. because it, you know, even though it's set in like the 60s, it takes me back to 87, 88 when I, you know, remember seeing it or listening to the music. So it definitely has that nostalgic feel to it. But it's not a great movie. I mean, watching right. it again, it's like there's, you know, there's some.
1: It's not really that really great acting. No, either. there's, there's some yeah, there's,
0: there's some corny writing. I mean mm-hmm. it's uh I mean it's well made. Um but yeah, Swayze's pretty good, Gray's pretty good, but there yeah, it's I think they, they did the best they could with what they were given and not take anything away from the screenwriter, but um I think she had a great story. I don't mm. know if it was necessarily executed. Uh one little last little trivia note was the most famous line from the movie is Nobody puts baby in
1: the corner. Right. Which It doesn't do it for me Because she's just sitting there watching everybody And here he comes Nobody puts baby in the corner And the line seems so random Because nobody said baby get in the corner
0: Right (laughs) Right. and really she's not even in a corner She's not in the
1: corner right There's
0: there's like a It's almost like an indention in the wall She's just kind of sitting there watching So Swayze said that he hated the line I hated it too And had a hard time saying it um, and even the screenwriter said she didn't. She really didn't know why it was there. Like, it didn't really make sense to her, but she didn't change it, even though there were several, several rewrites. But Swayze so said, looking back, when he watched the movie back, he could see why it became so popular um, based on the scenes that led up to it, mm-hmm. but he said he just didn't get it when he, when he actually read the line. So. <laughs> and I,
1: after watching it, too, I'm just like, why is that so funny? Yeah. it's like... Yeah. It's not even romantic. He's not even looking <laughs> in her eyes going, nobody puts babies. Yeah. Record.
0: I mean, yeah. it's just... <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> so, of course, the movie makes that much money, you would know they wanted to make a sequel.
1: and oh, they actually, really?
0: they actually wanted to pay Patrick Swayze a lot of money to do a sequel. But he was not a fan of sequels, so he turned it down because they couldn't get any... he said he didn't think there was any way they could, you know, they couldn't get, put lightning in a bottle twice. Right. So he uh, declined to do a sequel, but... In 2004, a prequel of the film was released entitled "Dirty Dancing: Havana Nights," which I've never seen. It tells the story of a sheltered American teenager learning about life through dance when her family relocates to Havana, Cuba, just before the 1959 Cuban Revolution. Swayze was paid five million dollars to appear in a cameo role as wow. a dance instructor. So, he, but. Anyway, so that's Dirty Dancing. That's what we got to talk about on this one. So it's great having you as a co-host. Well, thank you on this episode. Thanks for being a part. Thank you for having me. You're
1: welcome. I know I'm not the big movie buff, but you know it was fun <laughs> to watch it and um, talk about it and learn some stuff about it. Yeah. And it was like, cool to watch it again because you know I don't I didn't remember seeing it, but now it's been what nine years since the last time I watched it.
0: No, it's been 10, almost 11
1: Oh, oh, almost 11, because she is (laughs) 10 and a half, right? (laughs) Uh,
0: Yep.
1: So, um, so, yep, I liked it Good Thanks
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. Also, be on the lookout for our next mini episode. Each mini episode offers some fun segments about the previous full episode, and we'll also introduce the next 80s flick we'll be watching and covering in the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80's flick flashback.